0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Global Impact, the podcast and podcast that connects the dots, so so you don't have to. So you don't have to. (laughs) I'm Melissa Ritchie, co-host.
1: How are you, Michael?
0: I'm very good, thank you. Yes. I'm here on Vancouver Island. Where are you?
1: I am in LA. (laughs) I just came back.
0: (laughs) Where'd you come back from?
1: San Francisco. I was not that far, but still. It's exciting, mm-hmm. every time I travel, I'm like, yay.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <going> yeah. <laughs> have any fun there, discover anything new?
1: Um, well, I mean, uh, now that we have the vaccine pass, um, you know, we have a semblance of normalcy, I guess. We can go to places and socialize. Mm-hmm. And I actually went, um, I did a bit of, um, so I went there for work, but um, I had a day off and I went to the museum. Nice. I haven't been to a museum for yeah. the last time I went to uh, to a place like that. I went to the D. Young, uh, Young Museum. Um, they had a private exhibition, uh, which actually I recommend. It's the private collection of Patrick Kelly. Uh, I don't know if people know about Patrick Kelly. He's mm-hmm. a, um, a Black American fashion designer who got very big in the 80s, I think, with his very um, provocative fashion and very mm-hmm. visionary, actually, because he, um, he rubbed people the wrong way. He actually went to Paris with his collection and people were not ready for someone like him back then. But he pushed through, his fashion is very uh, extravagant, um, very much um, um, inspired by his mm-hmm. uh, ethnicity. And um, also, he brought, he brought a lot of um, um, a slavery theme in his um, collections and colors and shapes and everything, which, you know, people were like, ooh, you know, back yeah. then it was a big thing. But anyhow, it was very good. I just, um, so I went there, I saw that, and uh, I spent time at Golden Gate Park.
0: Nice. And
1: I saw a lot of uh, street artists, painters, and actually talking about painters, I'm going to have an artist. Today, yes, we so, are. That's exciting. Um, first artist, right?
0: <laughs> on first artist on global impact. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. So yeah, it was amazing. I had a, a wonderful weekend um, full of artistry, art, yeah. inspiration. And what about yourself? Tell me.
0: <laughs> what well, have you I mean, I, it's gray and overcast here on Vancouver Island, but in more ways than one. We, um, it's not raining right now, but it looks like it mm-hmm. might. But we just had. Uh, two days of torrential rains. We got in many parts of British Columbia, more rain uh, in 48 hours than the entire month of November, which is usually our wettest month. So a lot of British Columbia, uh, Southern British Columbia is very flat agricultural. Uh, Farmers, I so much feel for them. They just got inundated and animals uh, drowning and stuff like that. And uh, this is, don't forget uh, a few months ago, we had record high temperatures. never yeah, seen sure. before yeah. mm-hmm. and wildfires so it's a double burden now of wildfires on a lot of you know farmer properties and ed- and homeowners and then these floods and here on Vancouver Island our main north south artery ar- north south artery of the Malahat mm-hmm. Highway is basically cut off so but there's are you, no gas are you stranded? and uh, uh,
1: Michael are you stranded right now what's the situation
0: well, not really, but a lot of people can't get out and about because uh, they, uh, you know, they just can't get petrol for their vehicles. And um, you know, uh, there's a possibility of buses not getting petrol. So it, it does have a quick paralyzing process. When you live on an island like this, you only have really two choke points, the, the highways and the, the waterways right. uh, for transport of stuff. So we're very reliant on the mainland. Mm -hmm. But uh, the part of Southern British Columbia that was the worst hit, it's completely cut off now from the rest of Canada. So Mm -hmm. uh, rail lines, highways, uh, and these things take, uh, you know, it it got a lot of people thinking again about climate change. You know, we just ended that COP conference in Scotland uh, where everyone said we're on the precipice of disaster, of Mm irreversible catastrophe. And people here were really reminded of that the past few days because, again, wildfires, uh, unprecedented wildfires and heat in the summertime, and now this. Um,
1: well, I mean, I so, think yeah. we should definitely bring a guest uh, and talk about climate. Um, you know,
0: sure, yeah, a lot of very articulate and passionate people on that one. That's yeah. for sure,
1: and I think there's a lot to talk about because um, it just yeah. affects everyone globally, and and more so now because things are hitting us, you know, right and left. <laughs>
0: Yeah, right, <laughs> one after the other,
1: yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think it would be good to have a guest. Um, so we, sh- we, we, we are working sure. on yeah,
0: it. yeah, we're working on it, it.
1: Yes. yeah. So transitioning to to, to our guest, um, it's been a very painful two years, you know, with COVID, the pandemic, sure. the riots, the violence, the unrest, uh, people's emotion boiling up. It's been hard, I think uh, the, the hardest mm-hmm so far I've experienced myself uh, seeing people crumble. Um, yeah. You know, we, we had Mark Henick um, on the show who was an advocate of mental health a few shows ago. We talked about that, but today we are gonna actually have somebody who, who went to hell and back. And when I say hell, this is an understatement. Um, I think, um, I think Michael it's it's going to be it's going to be a hard one because we're going to mm-hmm. dive into very very controversial taboo subject it's going to be difficult i mean i'm i'm emotionally already you know like mm-hmm. wired because i feel it's 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 hard to not fall into the emotional connection with whatever the person went through you know like emotionally um i i hope i'm going to be able to keep going well i
0: remember (laughs) when you and i talked to victor malarik and he was talking about uh his time in a boy's home and stuff like that i could see the emotion on your face right there it's hard
1: sometimes to talk about certain things and not feel sure so yeah sure we're doing this you know hosting journalists we you know we we're doing journalism and everything but we're still human being Indeed. And, and, uh, and things do affect us. And so I'm, I'm dreading it, but at the same time, I'm very excited because I think this guest is going to inspire many, many, many people. Right,
0: yeah.
1: um, I mean, if, if he came back from hell, I mean, everybody, nobody has any excuse. We can do yeah. it. together. yeah. So,
0: yeah, I think um, it's one of those stories too. If you think you've had a bad day, listen to his story um kidding. but yeah his uh, thanks to you melissa we got in touch with our guest uh, sage gallon okay so yeah it's no exaggeration to say that our guest uh, sage gallon has overcome unimaginable heartbreak pain trials uh tribulations uh testing of his soul almost that he didn't see coming um, but I got to say, this is someone who, when Good Fortune did knock at his door, he ran with it, he really took advantage with it, did not disappoint humanity. Mm-hmm. And um, he's got a lot of credits to his name, as one would expect. Uh, Sage was named in NBC's Greal as one of the 40 Black artists to watch in 2014. And when he did uh, take to painting, he took to it like wildfire, producing over 400 paintings in both acrylic and watercolor and several, several controversial photography projects documenting the provocative, dark and raw experiences that he saw. Um, he spent a lot of time in New York and uh, New York is, despite what it, all it has to offer, it's a very, very difficult place to capture. And uh, knowing New York as well as I do, there's someone who's really captured those dark uh, secluded corners uh, to tell the world what's going on beneath the surface. Um, He also uh, debuted uh, in in the art world. He was in a group show in 2013 called Nebula. It was held in an airplane hangar in Santa Monica, California and attended by some 500 people. And his art has been published in various magazines and websites. In 2015, he premiered his controversial photo series, Rocks and Hard Places. Mm-hmm. He even produced a debut uh, music album, Naked, Un- Naked Under My Clothes, which is a collection of poetry put to music. Uh, the music videos for that album got critical print- attention by the press. Yes. So.
1: Yeah, and despite his uh, relatively like, quiet and good upbringing, I mean, he, nothing could have predicted that he would have gone through this dark journey you know, and fall into hell and back. Um, indeed, I mean, Sage was born in Long Island. Um, he spent his formative years living in a commune that was chosen by his mother. Uh, after moving back to New York with his mother and stepfather, Sage took a great interest in the arts. Hempstead, uh, the town he grew up in, did not lend itself um, for its, his artistic interests. So he, you know, he found himself at a very young age uh, sneaking into the city, you know. Trying to get inspired, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, his only artistic training uh, would come from his high school art teacher, Linda Shear. Um, later on, Sage attended the renowned Fashion Institute of Technology, and uh, soon after, unfortunately, that's when Sage was introduced to drugs and um, spiraled to hell and back. He was homeless, drug addict for ten years, survived on scraps. From garbage cans, yeah, he was that person you would see, you know, who would go to garbage can and pick up Mm -hmm. scraps, food to survive. Uh, Everybody went through that experience. So it's a very potent image. And um, our guest went through this. Um, And uh, he also worked briefly as a prostitute in Times Square. So it's gonna be a very dark, a dark one, but very inspiring at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, He bounced back and now he's here with us stronger than ever we cannot wait we cannot wait to introduce you know our guest this incredible human being sage gallon so welcome Hi. to global impact sage so we're going to start uh, as usual we tend to actually talk about childhood first and slowly we'll just you know unveil everything um, so sage where did you grow up
2: well, you know, I was born in um, New York, in Long Island, a small town uh, in, in Suffolk County called Wyandatch. And um, my, my parents were children. They were, my dad had just turned 18. My mother was still 17. They were unmarried when they conceived me. And um, when I was born, my dad was uh, shipped off to Vietnam. My mother had gotten into some issues with substances and she was sent to a commune in Northern California a place called Synanon up in Tamales Bay. So the beginning of my life was spent being raised really by my grandmothers, my paternal and maternal grandmothers in wine dance. When I was four years old and my dad um, had come back from Vietnam, and like many other men, young men, boys um, of his era, he came back with some they didn't even call it PTSD at the time. They didn't have a name. I don't believe they had a name for it. But my, my dad came back differently, um, different from when he had left and he wanted to get custody. And so they sent me off to the commune to live with my mother.
1: And um, how was that for you being in that commune? How was your upbringing?
2: Um, the upbringing was spectacular oh. was what I remember. I, I was raised by 500 people of every walk of life. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in my formative years, um, you know, in this beautiful environment with a a, a family of 500 people. I knew who my mother was in relationship to me, but she wasn't my primary caretaker. Um, But I grew up in a world where there wasn't racism, there wasn't misogyny, there wasn't the vulgarities of human nature until and i i was completely unaware of those things until moving back to new york when i was nine years old in 1979 so i grew up in my formative years with this uh, bohemianish kind of um reality um mm-hmm. it was euphoric for me it was euphoric
1: mm-hmm. uh, but then so we came like back to new york uh, in the commune, do you have like did you have different races White, black men? Oh, yeah everything. Yeah, everybody was mixed.
2: Mm-hmm. Whatever walk of life, from gay, straight, black, white, male, female, What the whole um, melting pot of humanity I was raised by. So like we were taught, I was taught um, that we were all a family. Mm-hmm. Um, I Like I said, I knew nothing about racism. Right. I knew nothing about misogyny or or what a woman is supposed to do this or a woman is supposed to do that. The women worked alongside the men. The men worked alongside the women. And, you know, so I never, I never, my foundation of who I am is seat in that reality, that experience and understanding that, you know, we're all intrinsically connected and we're all more alike than we are separate. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah Michael, do you have? Um... Sure. So, um, And uh, in that kind of environment, uh, you had a lot of influences, no doubt. Uh, Was there any inkling back then of what you wanted to become professionally or as an adult, what you wanted to do career-wise?
2: Then, no, actually. Um, I I was so busy being a kid that, You know, there was no future. There was, you know, as children, which makes, uh, you know, I think makes childhood so special is that there's only the immediate now. Um, So I never really thought about um, my future in that context. That came a little bit later, actually. Um, You know, when we moved back to New York in 1979, and at that time, Synanon, the commune I grew up in, had changed tremendously. And when we left, it was interesting because like I said, my mother was my my mother, but she wasn't my primary caretaker. And she and her then husband decided they were leaving. And my initial reaction was like, okay, make sure you write. I'll see you guys later. Have a great life. I'm, I'll be here with my family and you guys have a have fun. Mm-hmm. And they were like, no, 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 you're coming with. I was like, or <laughs> like, what do you mean? <laughs> And then being reintroduced to New York City, we lived in Harlem briefly, and, you know, it was 1979, and um, that um, Shangri-La reality that I had experienced growing up was ripped away from me, and and certainly did not exist um, in New York the way I had grown up. Um, yeah,
0: because Harlem was a really rough place back then. Right? Harlem like it was is a, now.
2: Exactly, exactly. Um, and I was, I was. We lived in Harlem. I think we moved to 158th Street. Um, yeah. And my mother, they they put me in a Catholic school, and I had no idea what was going on psychologically. Um, it was just a traumatic experience leaving Sinanon but then being emerged into an environment that was so alien to me. Um, and we stayed in Harlem for six months and then we moved to Hempstead, Long Island, where I was raised and grew up. Um, you know, and that's, I think, where the whole idea of art came into really my life. Um,
1: How old were you when you moved to uh, Long Island?
2: Hempstead, about 10 years old. 10 years. Actually, yeah, yeah. so the 79, 80. Um, so I was just turning 10 and, you know, um, because of all of the trauma and all of the stuff that was going on, that was the first time I tried to commit suicide, actually, was when I was wow. 10. Um, yeah, I tried to belt to the door and try to hang myself and um, luckily it didn't work. It was just so much and, you know, um, my mother was going through some stuff and my stepfather was a very violent man and, mm-hmm. um, I remember that that then that's where I found really that's where I found art. Art was um, in many ways and still is to this very day my salvation. Um, To be able to lose oneself in in for hours at a time in a drawing or a paint. Oh, I didn't paint, but in a drawing or in music. Um, You know, between drawing and Donna Summer. The only thing, those are the,
0: the two things that saved my life. <laughs> you were gonna, you wanted to marry Donna Summer. Right? I was
2: gonna be her <laughs> husband. You had no idea had it all What's
0: God. the matter with her not? I don't know.
2: That's what I'm saying.
0: <laughs> I was in love mean? with her too. I was about the same age. I like, oh, oh my goodness. Oh, she, <laughs> she. Yeah. She
2: was, I, I actually yeah. later in my years, <laughs> shortly before, she, right before she died, actually, uh, I got a chance to meet her. And it was just like, I've never been a starstruck person, but, and it wasn't even being starstruck. It was just the appreciation of how her voice and her music really um, got me through some very difficult times. And it was interesting for me because it made me realize how impactful art is to other people's lives. And, you know, without even, you know, knowing it 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 was just really fascinating but yeah so
0: that's when I grew up
2: in I grew up in Hempstead from 80 to to the time I left when I went to school
0: music uh and lyrics must really affect you because (coughs) I was listening this morning uh to your incredible story of how you were in Manhattan I guess a little bit older and you saw a Mack truck barreling down the street and you were inching towards it Mm -hmm. uh thinking I can't I guess, take it anymore. And then you heard a song. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, because of my, both of my parents were into drugs, I was a very square kid and, um, very animate about never using drugs. But then I got introduced to, um, cocaine, which quickly led to crack cocaine. Yeah. And, um, within a year's time, it was, uh, June, June seventeenth, nineteen ninety one, hmm. and by June seventeenth, nineteen ninety two, I was a homeless drug addict. I had picked out of garbage cans to answer, eat. Um, prostitution. Just my life was crazy, and um, I was done.
1: Who did introduce you to drugs? Do you remember that moment when you first had? Yeah, yeah,
2: you know, two two guys I met on the train. I hmm. uh, I don't want to say their names. Uh, oh, no. ones. We'll say D and J. Okay. Um, they lived a, about one stop away from my house, and uh, they had this beautiful three-bedroom apartment. This is June 17th. It was a Saturday. I was leaving my acting class in uh, on Lafayette, and um, got on the four train to go home. And we struck up a conversation. They invited me over to their home. I was doing a lot of cocaine at the time, powder cocaine. Um, and so they invite me to the home. It's a beautiful, like, it's a three bedroom apartment. And they have this black leather sofa, um, this black and white checkered rug, black and white china, a big screen TV. And they sent me down to the living room and they kind of disappeared. And, you know, although I was, uh, you know, doing a lot of cocaine, I still had a good upbringing. And so it would be rude just to pull out you know a bottle of cocaine and start sniffing without you know someone to see where the bathroom was so i could do it privately um and as i'm walking down the hallway in one of the they're standing in the doorway of one of their bedrooms and they have this aspirin bottle with aluminum foil ashes on the aluminum foil and a pen sticking out the side And i remember this as if it were today like if it were happening now it was the most, one of the most vivid memories of my life. Um, and I say, you know, what are you guys doing? They were like, we're getting high. Do you get high? And I'm like, yeah, I got some coke. Um, they said, do you want to try this? My exact words to them were, as long as it's not crack, I'll try anything. Their response to me was crack. Oh, my God. No. Do we, we look like crackheads? You know, they had leather furniture. Mm-hmm. And matching china. I mean. No, I mean, my perception of a crackhead was that dirty, nasty, smelly person on the street. Mm. Ironically, the person I would become a year to the date after this experience, after this introduction. And um, yeah, that's how that started. And I, you know, I guess coming from addiction uh, or parents who had addiction issues, I was, Mm predisposed to addiction I, I would never I, I didn't expect the rapidity of it how quickly I was on the street how quickly um, my life had descended so um, I am standing I'm homeless in New York City I, I I'm living on 8th Avenue uh, the street um, I typically didn't go further south than Penn Station Typically they not go further north than 50th Street. And it's early in the morning. And I always tell this story the same way because it's it's just sure. such so seared in my memory. But you know, it's is the whisper of New York, not the yell or the moan or the scream of New York yet. It's too early for that. It's the the whisper of New York. And mm. you know, the storefronts behind me are starting to open and you know the the, the traffic is moving at a rapid pace because there's no traffic at that yeah. time. And um, I was just done. I was done. I, I was in so much pain. I didn't have any more drugs. I didn't have any money. I didn't. I, I, and I had done um, the things I'd done to sustain my addiction at that time weighed so heavily on me, and so and I I didn't have that that out to get uh, away mentally, spiritually. And I'm standing, it's like five. 30, 6 o'clock in the morning I guess and um, there's a storefront opening behind me and they have their radio on and I could hear it I'm just not listening to them to the, to, I hear it I'm aware of it but I'm not listening I'm looking down the street I'm looking down 8th and there's this Mack truck down the street and it's going at a rapid pace and I'm like this is it I won't even feel anything, you know. And I tried to commit suicide numerous times before, but I was figuring that this one would be a winner, and I'd be done, and it'll be over, and I wouldn't feel that pain anymore. And um, you know, the the noise is getting a little bit louder. The truck, the cars, the the truck is coming faster. The wrought iron gate behind me opens, and the music comes out stronger. And I hear um, this melody. Da, 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 da. And the truck is coming faster and I'm inching closer to the curb because I don't want anyone to grab me. I don't want anyone to save me because I'm already done. I just want it over. And the truck is coming and the music behind me is getting, I'm starting to hear it now. Mm-hmm. And, and then I heard this voice. Um, There used to be a rain tower alone in this, and it was Seal singing, um, Kiss from a Rose, and this is when that song had just come out. Mm-hmm. And um, God, it always gets to me, this this, this moment of my life, because it, it was as though this man had reached into my heart and hugged all of the pain. Didn't eliminate it, didn't get rid of it, but understood it in his song and in his voice. And I just stood there, started just like bawling like a child, like a baby. And just the song, his voice, that music just enveloped me. And when I finally was able to wipe the the tears from my eyes, that truck had passed. That moment had passed. The pain um, had subsided briefly, just brief, briefly enough for me not to try to jump in front of another truck. And I stood there and that song just resonated with me. And I, I you know, um, when I moved to Los, Los Angeles, um, March 7th, uh, 1994, I think, ninety seven. I just moved back to New York. I was there. I think it was '97. Um, I, I had. I was at a party uh, that where I got to meet Seal and tell him oh, that story. Wow! And again, um, you know, music, lyrics, art, film, all of it. You know, it it does have a power to transform, to save, to elevate, to heal. And yeah, that, that was that one.
0: Sage, thanks for telling us that story. And you said something that really grabbed me, uh, uh, connected to that story. Uh, You said that when you're homeless, you're unaware of your own stench, and I was unaware of my own pain. What did you mean by that? It's such a gripping uh, kind of thought there.
2: Well, you know, like I said, I grew up as a square kid. I was literally... My mother, whom I miss and I love, she, she was a hellfire. Um, we were poor growing up. We were poor, but I never knew that. So I grew up kind of like a Cosby kid. Um, you know, I, she made sure I had everything and anything I could have possibly imagined. So I had this very, um, I had a very—I prejudice against poor people, even though I was poor. I, I had a, you know, homelessness was, you know, how ill, like I would stick my nose up to you yeah, and cross the street.
1: Say, did you feel like you, you were under pressure to fit in? Um, you know, when you were like in New York, and you first you were at this very big school, which was uh, what school was that again? Oh, uh, yeah. where so I grew up,
2: Hempstead High School.
1: No, no. After when. Oh, you,
2: FIT you to FIT. Yes. Yeah.
1: Um, and, and you know, people are a bit rich. Mm-hmm. It's the rich crowd, the artsy. Kind yeah. Yeah, was it, did you feel pressure to fit in? No,
2: no, I, I mean, what, what kind of broke that ball was that I was a bohemian black kid from a commune living in a middle class, middle class working class black community growing up, I was always weird. And once I got, you know, once I embraced my weirdness, I was like, fine, I was good. Like, yeah. Yeah. you know, I'm just gonna be different because I'm not gonna try. And yeah. you know, fitting in always bored me. It was not my thing, um, but I never felt that type of pressure. So
1: the drug, the drug was not something that you wanted. You, you, you know, you, you got exposed to and did it because you wanted to fit in. You just did it no. because it was already something familiar for you. you but know,
2: well. I, I think just being an artist, there's. Um, one of the things I, I think many of artists don't have is that stop button. Um, you know, it was like, oh, what's that? We'll try that. You'll, you want to feel or experience everything. And then you add that with the fact that, you know, I'm more, I'm probably predisposed to um, addiction that it really just the descent was fabulous. Um, but it wasn't to fit in. It wasn't to, um, you know, get friends or be popular or anything to that nature. It yeah. was just a matter of like, I've never tried this before. Let me try this kind of thing. And
1: of experiencing life and opening up the gate of creativity.
2: Right. Exactly. Uh, exactly. I mean,
1: a lot of artists um, do substance, you know, to actually get inspired. They smoke pot and everything. What, what's your take on that today? I mean, what do you feel? Uh, what's your take on on pe- on artists doing drugs to to become better artists?
2: I don't know if that would be the reason. I think that, you know, I think everything is energy and frequency. Mm-hmm. And I think whatever God is, whatever, I'm not a religious person, I'm a very spiritual person, but I'm not a religious person. I, I read all of the texts and scriptures and studied various religions, but my conclusion is God is a creator. The Mother Divine, the universe is a creator. So, and this. Manifestation, I am an artist. So if we're vibrating on frequency and energy, artists are in a weird position closer to that ascension. Mm-hmm. And not closer or be- not better or worse than, but artists vibrate at a different energy. Empaths, clairvoyance, um, artists are on, on a different frequency, I think, than a lot of people. However, we live in a construct that is kind of antithetical to our most authentic nature, our truest selves. Mm-hmm. And so, to navigate between those two elements, those two worlds, you'll have a lot of friction. And I think most artists are, a lot of artists are self destructive or addicts in some form of fashion or, you know, suicidal or because one, as an empath, which you are as an artist, you're mm-hmm. absorbing and feeling everything mm-hmm. everything yeah. and then to try to navigate on the the construct and the reality of who you are mm-hmm. and that friction that ensues between those two worlds it causes great distress on the spirit the mind and like like you know like i said you know i found art after my first failed suicide attempt you know, it comes out of a place of desperation or necessity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where a lot of artists um, tend to be, uh, and even, you know, the popular ones, you know, the ones who become successful or famous or rich or powerful, mm-hmm. you know, um, as, if there's still artists, there's there's going to be a, there's going to be that um, paradox that one lives in of I think especially if you become a rich successful famous artist then that to me is like uh it it it, it magnifies that paradox
1: right, right and you live in a heightened reality anyway I mean everything is so heightened it's mm-hmm. available as you become richer and more successful yeah you know I mean drugs it's on our platter yeah you are know, just offered things and um and as you said, I mean, it's this um, need to constantly reach for something more to open the gates mm-hmm. of more. As an artist, we are seeker of truth and life, and uh, and sometimes, unfortunately, we take it too far, you know. Mm-hmm. It hurts yeah. us. And drugs, or um, if you take like artists who do method acting, you know, talking about actors. Yeah. Go down into that dark hole and cannot get out of it. You know, I mean, the actor um, from uh, Dark um, Dark Knight, oh uh, yeah,
2: um, Heath Heath Ledger,
1: yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, Marlon Brando. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the list is endless. Uh, yeah. You know, just where the artists and when I say artists, I, I I regard everyone to be an artist in some form of fashion. Yeah. Um, but the, the creative visual artists, I think, are are a little bit different in that regards in that. You know, there's always, you're always inundated by inspiration. You're always inundated by emotion and feeling. Um, so yeah, it's, it's fascinating. But we all have that. The 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 um, series, Michael, that you, you referred to earlier, mm-hmm. the Cracks the crack series, I titled it Cracks, with an apostrophe over the S at the end. Because we all have something. We all have It could be shopping. It could be washing your hands um, compulsively. It could be drinking. It could be strip clubs. It could be whatever it is. It could be, you know, cutting out coupons for the Piggly Wiggly. Whatever it is, we all have that thing. The dark. Yeah. The thing that we can't necessarily control. Um, I don't know if it's dark or light, but I know that there's something that um, we we all share a commonality on many regards, um, but we all have our crack. We all have that one thing, at least that one thing. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah.
0: Do you um in your particular I mean, yeah your your work is so expressive, whether it's the photography, uh, the the paintings, so deep. Do you think in your particular case also? Uh, it was a bit of a salvation for you because you weren't holding these deep feelings, perhaps the anger or the anxiety inside of you, but you're sharing it with the whole world. Uh, And that must have helped quite a bit, yes?
2: It it does, and it put my experiences in a very interesting perspective. Um, If I hadn't been homeless, I couldn't shoot my homeless series, Matthews 2540. and it was, you know, or the crack series, or the the Queens and Kings series, where I got to spend a year on the streets in um, Hollywood with these homeless transgender kids. If I if A, B, and C did not occur yeah. in my yeah. personal life, mm-hmm. then I would not have had the opportunity, the wherewithal, or the foresight mm-hmm. to see the humanity in, in various stations. Mm-hmm. Um, if my If I were to say a normal person, I wouldn't be able to paint what I paint. Um, I I say this often, you know, we're all brought here with promise and with purpose. And although my life is mine uniquely, it is not mine exclusively. So I've been given, I've been been given a patchwork uh, of, of swatches, to stitch together to create this life or this garment of life. And if I didn't have that piece of material, then I would have a hole where it was supposed to be, where it belonged. So I think that it one, I think, informs the other. My life, my history, my experience um, gave me an opportunity to be receptive to the lives of other people in a way which I wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been the same had I not gone through that. So it was my salvation. Yes, art was my salvation, but my life was my education. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: and, actually, I'm gonna quote you here because you, you said something that really was poignant and uh, moved me a lot, you said, Being homeless is being invisible. It's being despised. It's being rejected. It hurts. The pain that got you in that space is magnified by the pain inflicted by others while you're in that space. One can easily slip deeper into the abyss and lose their mind. There's nothing colder than being invisible inhuman. Um, I said it. You said that.
0: Wow. <laughs> very eloquent. <laughs> so intelligent. That was me. I was to
1: say that, yes. And um, you know what, when I was reading this, it's fascinating because that came from a very specific experience, homelessness. Mm-hmm. But this is very, it's very uh, relatable to many people right now who are, you know, after those past two years with COVID and everything, Um, a lot of people feel like that. When I was reading it, it hit me. Yeah, It's Um, it's a very, uh, as you said, pain is not exclusive to oneself. mm -hmm. It's, you know, we're all sharing it together collectively.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, Can you tell us uh, more about how, I mean, can we go into details? Um, How, when you were homeless, how emotionally on the feeling level did you feel? How was your journey, your full process, everything?
2: You know, it's interesting. Because um, I've been thinking, and this is a fascinating question for me right now. I've been thinking a lot about that lately, actually. Um, you know, I know that it started off, uh, you know, through the drugs and, oh, well, I'm not homeless because I have an apartment, I have somewhere to go. And then I lost the apartment, but I kept the keys. So I would always carry a set of keys with me. Um, and in the beginning, I think it was more, "Oh, this is an adventure," and then it became real. Um, then it became real. Yeah. And you asked something earlier about the stench. Like, I, I didn't realize that I had smelled until once I got onto a bus. And um, because in my I I I convinced myself that I didn't look that bad now mind you at that time my natural body weight was 175 uh, pounds I reached 130 pounds 135 pounds um I reeked um I reeked because I hadn't showered or bathed and I didn't realize it so my my brain created a whole illusion that enabled me to um Exactly. And then what happened is reality hits you. And so especially in New York where you're inundated with 8 million people who are literally walking through you because you you don't matter, you don't exist. The conflict with me in that regard was I, I was messed up, but I was still a good person. Like I never, you know hit an old woman over her head to steal her pocketbook. I never, I, I, I was, I, I still had a good heart, a good foundation. And what I understood then, and like I said, you know, growing up as a Cosby kid in, in this community in the eighties mm-hmm. um, and being a, a person who stuck my nose up to homeless, a homeless person and then being the very thing I despised myself Now being despised by others and understanding that, you know, I would look, sit in in, in doorways for hours and people would walk past or walk through you. And you're like thinking to yourself, or they would diminish you or, you you know, people would diminish you and and dehumanize you. Um, And you're saying to yourself, you're a paycheck, you're a disease, you're a sickness away from where I am. And that to me was one of the greatest lessons of my life in terms of how human we are, how intrinsically connected we are and how fragile, how vulnerable we
0: are. You said something so relevant for these times just now um, because of COVID and the unprecedented disruption that it brought. And even before COVID, a lot of people would say, yeah, in America, people are are a paycheck or a sickness away from bankruptcy or homelessness. What would you say, Sage, to the millions who are going through a lot of anxiety right now, a lot of disruption, who perhaps have even lost the roof over their head for the first time in their lives at their jobs, um, how to cope? And I ask you that because you've fallen, you've got up, you've fallen, you got up. And I think you had a lot of friends to intervene on your behalf too. But what would be your advice tonight? I know it's maybe difficult to say to such a wide audience, but for those who are listening out there who are on the edge right now, any words there?
2: What I find most helpful for me and being there now, um, moving from LA to New York and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the whole transition of that, um, what I've The what I find most helpful for me, and, and especially in my times of fear or worry or anxiety, when I feel my energy getting to that level, I try to see what could I do to do what could I do for someone else? Yeah. How could I help someone else? Not not that you know you know I, I to post. You know, giving a homeless person a plate of food on Thanksgiving and posting it on Instagram to get likes or anything. But what could I do to sincerely and genuinely help? And it doesn't have to be a homeless person. It could be a woman with a stroller going down the subway station. It could be... Okay, so I'm going to out myself. Um, I've been feeling that anxiety uh, the last couple of weeks, especially g- getting back to, uh, to New York. And um, I was having lunch a few weeks ago with a dear friend of mine, an amazing designer named Epperson. And we were on um, the upper, uh, East side. And we're finishing our lunch. And um, there's this man who's walking across this, walking down the street uh disheveled middle-aged homeless mm-hmm. man he has no shoes on nor does he have any socks on so my friend epperson goes into the restroom and i stopped this man on the, on the street and i say, um you don't have any shoes and he asked me for a cigarette i gave him a cigarette i said and by the time Epperson's coming out of the thing, out of the restaurant, there's like a Dwayne Reed across the street. I asked my friend Epperson, please keep this man company, please don't let him leave. Um, I don't have any money to buy a pair of shoes, but I certainly have $10 to buy a pair of socks.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, or a package of socks. Mm-hmm. And so I run across the street and I don't know what's happening or why I'm, doing, I know why I'm doing this, but I don't know how this is going to happen. And I come back and I give the man two pairs of socks to put on his feet. I'm like, you know, he asked me for another cigarette. I give it to him. And I said, please just put the socks on now for me just to make me feel better. Um, By the time I got to the two train, uh, that whole pack of socks was gone. So now one of the things I'm I'm trying to teach myself or um, make a habit now, is never to leave my house without a, a pair of socks <laughs> in my pocket. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it's always, um, when, I'm, when my chi is unaligned, when my energy is volatile, mm-hmm. I have to think, how could I help someone else? And that always um, helps me.
0: And don't be afraid to ask for help as well, right?
2: Exactly. Exactly. I have, you know, my closest friends, John Vines and David Zelina, and, you know, I have that those people who might trust implicitly who, you know, could look at me like what's going on, you know, and that's an important element too is, you know, a part of being altruistic is being ex- is being able to accept, um, I need help. I need, I need yeah. to talk, you know, and, and being willing and strong enough to uh, articulate that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people are hoping if there's anything that good that good that came out of COVID and the lockdowns is that people are more inclined now uh, to ask for help. There's less stigma to go out and say, look, I need help or my suffering from this or that. So hopefully we'll come out of this on the on the better end in that regard.
2: Yeah. 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 I, you know, I hope so. It was interesting, this pandemic, and I think it was uh, in many regards, as tragic as it was, it was on some in many regards, it was a blessing. Um, it, it showed the entire world, um, you know, how one, the human imprint is outs- enorm- enormous, um, how fragile things are, and what ways to find your happy. Um, I lost my job in LA and I worked in a restaurant. I loved the restaurant, I loved the owners. It's called AOC. Um, I loved what I did, I really enjoyed it. But when the restaurant closed down, it was a higher end restaurant. So the the, the places that I've worked at, I never was really affected by um, external economic stuff. And yeah. when this happened, it was like, like, oh, what do you mean? Like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. But with, I remember the day Caroline and Suzanne had to tell us that we were we were they were closing down, and I remember saying to myself, because okay, okay, Sage, this is going to be either the best or the worst time of your life, but only you can decide.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And I got to travel and go see people I love and surround myself with my friends and my family. Uh, And I I got to go on this great pursuit to find my happy, the things that make me happy, the places, the people that make me happy. You know, YouTube, bravo. I, I, I learned how to cook new stuff. (laughs) <laughs> I you remember
1: know? that uh, period when people were cooking. Um, what was that banana banana bread? The exactly. Banana bread. <laughs> was funny. There was no flour in the shops. Yeah, no <laughs> flour. Oh, my God. Everybody wanted no. to bake. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> that but was. To crazy. learn and um, and and to keep that going though to keep that sense of um, exploration going to to realize that, you know, the beginning of COVID within the first three months, you had turtles nesting in the beaches of Venice, dolphins swimming in the Isles of Venice. You had the freshest air in 70 years. You had um, planting in Argentina, illuminating the waves that you hadn't seen in 70 years. You had yeah. all of this stuff happen. And, you know, the idea is this. It doesn't take a pandemic to make you think about how connected we are. It doesn't, it shouldn't take another mm-hmm. um tragedy that will have people you know fighting in in grocery stores for a roll of toilet paper you know that that sense of awareness now
1: that? Yeah. was that
2: like insane that was insane yeah. like
1: insane. i mean there was but, so much violence and riots actually we wanted to also talk to you about the black lives black life matters would you like mm-hmm. comfortable talking yeah, of
2: course about- yeah
1: What's, um, what do you think of this movement? Do you, do you think it's positive, negative, or is it too soon to... Um,
2: I think much like any movement, I, like, you know, growing up in a commune, like I said, and not being aware of racism until I was made aware of racism. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I was 10 years old, when the first time a white person called me a nigger. And I didn't know what that meant. I thought it was somebody's name. And we were playing in a park and this white man came up to me and I'm I'm 10, I have my two younger cousins with me. And he says, niggers can't play here. My response to him was, well, if I see this nigger kid, I'll tell him to leave. Um, I know that this country is seeped in racism and the oppression of people of color. Um, I know that the violence perpetuated here in this country is a part of the fabric of America. And I know that there's also a breaking point with that. I know that the inhuman, inhumane, inhumane treatment of a group will eventually lead to some kind of um, counter reaction. Um, we've marched, uh, we've sung, we've prayed, we've turned the other cheek, um, but at what point, do you make a change? And see, I don't think racism has ever been an issue of people of color. People of color didn't create racism; that was a white concept, you know, in the 16, 1700s. Um, it was specifically, rich white who wanted to separate the poor whites from the blacks because they didn't want them coming together and creating some revolution that, that we saw, like we saw in the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it goes back to a very, um, I think, it go, see, and all of this ties back to art to me. Um, art is a spiritual experience as an artist. I, I think of art as my prayer meditation. And I think it, it, it lends itself to the healing of the ills of the world, of the ills of humanity,
1: mm-hmm.
2: if applied properly. And I think that's an, a matter of change. I think the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, what I'm, what I found fascinating about this, as opposed to the many other Black Lives Matter before Black Lives Matter, is that you have far more white people and um, and non-colored people were associated with this. Where it took, you know, George Floyd's murder for uh, people to understand what my grandmother and grandfather, what my mother and father, what I've been saying for decades and centuries, you know, that people are really understanding that, oh, this isn't an exaggeration. Um, This is actually happening. And I can't even tell you like how many times in my personal life, even before drugs that I was pulled over or stopped, um, followed in a store, how many times I was leaving my job at the Hollywood Bowl and with, say, $1,400 that I made for that night in my pocket and walking across the street where people would hurry to lock their car doors. You know, it is it's an ugly thing that, um, that requires a movement. It requires a revolution. It requires a spiritual evolution. Yeah. Um, and I'm just happy that it's not just Black people now marching, that it's people of every walks of life. Right. Because, you know, what you do, my, my, my homeless series, Matthews 2540, in the scripture of Matthews is, what you do unto the least of us, you do unto me. You know, all of my work, I hope, really uh, makes people understand how connected we are so that that idea or concept of race or misogyny or homophobia or alienation of whomever um, is just eviscerated. It doesn't, it should no longer exist. Yeah. Cause you, you know, your hatred of me isn't about me at all. That's about you. So we need to heal that first.
1: But well, you did say, there's another quote, I love quotes. <laughs> said, uh, when honesty meets art, it ends in an explosion. So let's be honest here, you know? I think it's about taking accountability and seeing things as it is and stop you know wearing those thin glasses and i think i loved the fact that people are awakening we're going through a time of spiritual awakening but social awakening where things are broader and more clear but the mm-hmm. sometimes there's a lot of confusion and there's been uh you know sage like there's been like a lot of um um censorship and people voice being shut down in the media. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we're going through that right now. How do you feel as an artist? What's your take on all this censorship going on? Because-
2: You know, listen, as an artist, and so uh, what is the first thing any oligarch or Nazi or, or authoritarian dictator, what's the first thing they all do? The first thing they all do: burn the books, confiscate the art, get rid of the creatives, lock the heritage, the heretics up. You know they're 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 bad. You understand that going into the game. That you know, healing, like I said, healing creation is a spiritual experience. It, it precipitates the intellectual. It, I said this in one of the um. One of the um, documentaries that, that I was a part of, uh, like art, it, it whispers to the eyes, it screams to the heart. And so, you know, you understand that if you are going to try to censor me, like I was kicked off of Twitter,
0: Uh (laughs) 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 I've
2: been in Facebook jail so many times I was just wearing stripes (laughs) when I go into Um, you know you you know that if you're going to if your attempt is to censor me if you're if you're gunning for me that means I'm doing something right. right if you're angry at what I have to say through my creativity, that means I'll be doing something right. You, push push. you know, I have a photo series, um, Rocks and Hard Places, Rocks and Hard Places from Castration to the Mendingo Complex. When Dylan Roof um, sat in that church for, the, for an hour in a black church in South Carolina um, and stood up after an hour, he screamed out, you rape our women and proceeded to shoot that church up killing nine people, nine souls who were there to worship, who uh, who brought him, them, him in to their home. And he murdered these people. And most of them were elders. There was one woman, I believe, in her mid to the late 90s who had literally probably cut one of her husbands or brothers or uncles or nephews down from a tree wow. from being lynched. She's somebody who probably had to sip water from this fountain and not that one. She was probably someone who sat at the back of the bus at one point. She was probably someone who marched and had water hoses sprayed on her or dogs um, let free on her. And she was probably, she was a woman who watched the first black president elected United States president, the uh, the president of the United States to have her life snuffed out by some deranged white man at 21 mm-hmm. years old, who screamed out, you rape our women. It was infuriating the, the hurt and loss of that. Um, I created this, did this photo series called Rocks and Hard Places from Castration to the Mandingo Complex, where I objectified the objectified. So it was a whole series of Black male genitalia. Mm-hmm. I feel- and I tag it kind of Maplethorpe meets Malcolm X. And there's, a particular, there's two pictures in particular mm-hmm. that get a very visceral visceral reaction from people and um you know that those those two were people were trying to censor those oh you can't show this you can't do that you can't say that excuse me and then i'm i'm asking well why because i I, you know i'm i want to strike up a conversation i'm genuinely interested in understanding your perspective but the flag is burning yes well you have a naked black man with a flag, a burning flag. Okay. So what what are, what what are you upset about with that? Well, you know, Sage, people died for that flag. Yes, I agree. People have died for that flag. People have died because of it. And I had two grandfathers, both of whom fought in the world World War II, who and both were from the South, and who, when they were coming home from the war, men like them were being lynched in their uniforms. So, I mean, you can't give reverence to a symbol unless you understand what that means and you're demonstrating the beauty of that symbol.
1: Right.
2: You know, so we're... we're
1: it's a matter of perspective and widening up people's scope of understanding on because mm-hmm. people are standing on one position. Yeah. Very rarely they're actually going to, you know, the other position. Mm-hmm. And of course it is a way to stretch people's minds and you know, escape yeah. going on on the bigger picture. I but think. we will
2: we, we'll never get there if we choose to censor. I may not agree with you. Mm. I, a good friend of mine in L.A. is he's, he's, uh, very conservative uh, politically. And he and I, I mean, to me, is some of the stuff that he posts is just like the most bizarre stuff ever. But I'm genuinely interested in how he came to this conclusion. I, I, I disagree with you venomously. And this is why I disagree with you. But I don't have to hate you. I don't, I, I don't even have to silence you. You could say what you want. You could feel the way you want. I'm interested in coming, understanding how you came to this conclusion. But if you're in turn trying to censor me and shut me down, then you'll never get the opportunity to understand where I'm coming from. And even if I am wrong, you'll never have the opportunity to show me where I'm wrong or how I'm wrong because you've already diminished me. You've already silenced me. You've already cut my, my perspective out and threw it out the window. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. You know, people, I don't have to agree.
1: If only people could listen to that and on repeat.
0: Yeah, exactly. I would
1: just sort out so many problems right now. I mean, thank yeah. you for that, Sage, because that was uh, needed, you know? People need to hear yeah,
0: that. that was great. Oh, okay. Sage, so you're back in New York now. New York went through a very challenging time uh, with the Black Lives Matter protests, but also um, with COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of places closed down, will never come back up. I'm wondering... Yeah. Now you're being back. You're being back there, and you know the place so well. Do you feel a different vibe somehow in New York now?
2: I do. Uh, I do very much so. And one of the things that attracted me to come back home is that very vibe. Um, New York had become too. Um, she had too many diamonds on. Yes. And she was far too expensive, even to look at or to appreciate. I come from a New York where. You know, she had fishnet stockings with runs and, you know, uh, platform <laughs> shoes in a miniskirt. I come from the 90s, New York, um, where it was just reveled in art yep. and creativity. And yes, there were junkies and people ODing on Avenue C, but, you know, you had Basquiat and Keith Herring over here. It was, yeah. you know, it was that, that energy. She needed, you know, she needed a new dress, but I think... Um, the fashion became too expensive and it, it became untenable to live. It became um, Disneyland in many ways and and yeah. very exclusive. Um, I remember coming home, when one of my trips home when I was early in uh, LA and uh, I got a round trip ticket to Long Island and I, I was like, how much are you charging me? Like $30? I'm, I was like, I'm not trying to buy the train. I just want to see like. <laughs> Um, and to see that, that through the transformation, I always tell people in New York is like, you know, it, she's just this beautiful city that changes her wardrobe. And I think that right now, because of the trauma of COVID and everything else that's, um, expo- expi- uh, that has happened over the last couple of years, that there's a sense, there's a sense of urgency and energy here that is just so alluring for an artist. I think it's just ah, mm. oh, it's is this all of it—the tragedy of it, the beauty of it, the the um accessibility of it—and and like coming home and you you walk down a city block and every block is a masterpiece, like every single block is a masterpiece, mm. and mm. you're just right with these stories and for writing and for shooting and you know to paint and everything right now to me is just like it's just so amazing and yeah. even the tragedy of it even you know the, the person right now smoking crack on on the subway because there is one right now smoking crack on the subway and then no matter how crowded that subway station is but you know there's someone right now um doing something that lends itself to the energy and to the food to the buffet of of what new york is and you know, um, what was that movie, Maine? Um, most people are too afraid to eat or feast. The line from that, uh, Life is a buffet, and most SOBs are afraid to eat. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, Auntie so, Maine. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I think right now it's just such a beautiful place to be in creating that energy. And hopefully we could, you know, come to a wardrobe that's not you know too expensive and not trashy but some somewhere in between yeah, yeah, you know yeah. and, and create that
1: so what did you, in you LA, what was um uh did you not feel cre- creativity here anymore? <laughs>
2: no okay so I left New York I was taken from New York actually because um in the early nineties when I just let everyone know that i was you know in such pain and smoking cracking on the street and my mom took me to maryland to this rehab um called rap and i stayed there for six months and then i uh, left there because you know like i said i've always had a foundation like i've always been a good person in spite of my situation or how i felt about myself i've always had a good heart and um i was you know Well-exposed to a lot of things. So, I, you know, I had a decent vocabulary and um, I was relatively intelligent. So even in that rehab, I became, I started to become a counselor and the counselors were, I, I, I kind of manipulated this situation where I, I wasn't um, accountable to my own disease or or illness. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't getting the treatment that I needed because I was manipulating a situation where I was helping everybody else. So I ended up leaving and then um, relapsed. Uh, And I was going with this kind of rinse and repeat kind of a thing. And I was um, staying with this older dude, a friend of mine, um, Richard, and uh, using drugs. Um, And I was sitting on the couch and I was watching um, cops it was a special episode of Cops. It was Cops L.A. So it was like, "Bad boy, bad boy, what you gonna do?" <laughs> so this guy goes to go buy some crack, and it's like this undercover sting, and they grab him, they throw him on the car, and they ah! And, like, ah, and it's like ah, and it's like all this commotion. And I was like, "I need to move there because I'll be too afraid to buy crack if I move there." So Richard, who was tired of me sleeping on his couch at the time, I guess, bought me a one-way ticket. Um, I had a one-way ticket, a, a, two trash cans, two, I'm sorry, two trash bags, the black hefty bags of clothes, a box of books. And he gave me a check for $50. And I knew one person in LA, um, whom I stayed with a, a good friend of mine, Kurt, uh, who ironically I, I'm roomating with now and, and back home in New York. Um, and then kind of made my way um, what happened while living in D.C., I started, that's where I started painting. And I didn't really paint paint before that because I was too afraid. I always felt that if you paint and you make a mistake that you can't erase it. Um, and so I started painting then. A friend of mine, uh, Walter Neal, saw some of my drawings and took me to the art supply store. Um, I've always had angels. I've always had some really great angels in my life. Uh, and that's how I started painting. But when I moved to L.A., I stopped painting, and uh, eventually I got sober. Was like, sober for eleven years, and then I had the relapse, and gnarly relapse. It um, huh?
1: It was a bad one. You almost. Did oh it.
2: yeah, yeah. It, 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 I mean, I was smoking crack before, but this was another beast. This was something completely different. I mean, it literally um, almost took everything, including especially my soul. Uh, but it was such a gift because at that point is, um, I remember coming home to my apartment uh, at the tail end of the relapse. And this is uh, December, right after my birthday. Uh, we had had my first exhibit, it was a group show uh, that I produced, my, my best friend, Yuri, one of my best friends, Yuri Busco, um and I produced this show. It was a group show um, in November. In December, I came home after a few day run uh, on, on the streets and I had no more money, I had no more access to drugs. I had no more drugs, but I came back to my apartment with just a tremendous amount of pain. And I had some old acrylic paints on the, in the corner. I put some water in them, shook them up, laid down on the floor and scratched out my first painting. And then I told everyone again, I was like, I'm, I'm dying here and I, I can't do this by myself. I need help. They sent me to. Um, I went to move into a um, sober living for a period of time. My job um, with Patina Restaurants instead of firing me, they give me time off, so I'm staying in the sober living. Uh, sober living. I don't have anything else to do but paint. Yeah. So I start painting and I'm posting things on Facebook, um, just for you know, you know, giggles. It was I wasn't serious. Yeah. And, and right before then I was named as one of the 40 black artists to watch oh, in the Rio. So it was such an irony because here. Uh, right? Yeah, 2014. So I had this very prestigious honor of being named as one of the 40 black artists to watch about my about, life. Huh? What
1: about Sage? Um, in two years time, you actually, your paintings went from $250 to over 10K. Yeah. And you accomplished yeah. that in two years
2: yeah it's been it's been interesting that's, that's it's kind of crazy um, yeah that's a
1: crazy one I think. <laughs> yeah and yeah 400 you actually painted 400 paintings over
2: um and that was just from dc actually over 400 right. paintings nice. and when i would just give them away like that was before um like i never thought of this like one of your michael one of your earlier questions was yeah when did you think about being an artist and i never really thought like this um it didn't dawn on me, really. You know, um, that first painting in 2014, I, I'm in this sober living. I'm, You know, it was so funny because my life is in shambles, but I get this four, one of the 40 Black artists to watch thing. It was just like, yeah. this is crazy. I post a, a, a little watercolor on my Facebook page and a friend of mine, Tim Benton, uh, I went to high school with, called me up and he was like, I love this piece. I want to buy it. And I was like, buy it. I was like, I'll, I'll just give it to you. Like, yeah, just give me your address. She was like, no, 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 I want to buy it. How much? And so I think I'm being like this wise guy, right? I'm gonna give you a number which is gonna be so outrageous that you'll say, "Oh no, just, just yeah, okay, yeah, I don't, I won't buy it. You can send it to me." I said two hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, I'll take it. I was like, "Oh shoot!" <laughs> <laughs> and that's no, no. how, yeah, that's how it started. And then, um, you know, from there, I had my two uh, solo uh, gallery exhibits in LA and various interviews and podcasts and other shows and and it's just kind of you know i i it is is it's it's humbling it's really um you know it's it's humbling and you you don't know um i don't know how my work is going to affect other people I, it's not something i you consciously think about um you know, like Melissa, your painting. I, I know that Kent um, Kent studied this, this in 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 a very meditative way. He was very meticulous and purposeful with selecting that piece for you. Um,
1: you do know that I don't even know the story on how I ended up having your painting. Uh, you know, like, I, I just, I was trying to figure it out. So right now I am actually being, having clarity because you uh-huh. just said, I have something for you. And I'm like, okay. And so I went to, we live in the same building and he came in and, and actually I went to his place and he showed me that painting and I'm like, what is this? And then he told me that you left me that painting. But yeah, yeah. I could not put the dots together. So yeah, that was you know- just- The mystery here. (laughs) he,
2: He, you know, he he was very particular. He was very particular. But you know, as an artist, you know, you know, I just hope that I could be open and receptive to the process, and if it affects someone, I, you know, through my films or spoken word, through the photography, through the painting, through my example,
1: we will post everything. Your website, everything you're doing right now, under the the video and the link. Oh, awesome! Thank you. Work and. And also, I have a last question for you. Yes. And um, so lastly, if the world was about to end tomorrow Mm -hmm. and you had a last message for humanity, what would you say to them, to to humanity?
2: It's a really great question. If the world were going to end tomorrow, what would be my last message to humanity? Mm. My last message to humanity, if the world were ending tomorrow, um, don't leave with a regret. Don't have regrets. Before, Before this is over, just tell that person you love that you love them even if you haven't spoken to them for 10 years, don't leave with regret. Um. I guess that would be the thing. It's like, you know, the, the times that I've almost died, especially the time I got stabbed in the neck, that was the thing I could, that was the only the deepest thing I could think about. Mm-hmm. Am I proud of the man I am today? And I can answer that affirmative yes. Um, does everyone I love know without question that I love them? Do I know that they love me? Yes. There should never be ambiguity in love. Don't leave with a regret of ambiguity um, of loving. Let everyone you know, everyone you know, that you love them. Even the people you don't like. Let them know, hey, I love you. Can't stand your guts, but I love you. Because they're a gift to us. That's all I would say. Don't leave with a regret. And never let love be ambiguous. That's uh, so is-
0: beautifully said. Um, we like to, for the longest time, I can remember we end the program by reminding people, hey, you've got this technology that's free or relatively cheap. Use it to reach out to people and touch them. Even if it's a 10 second, whatever. Uh, that. Because a lot of people, as we were talking about earlier, are such desperation or anxiety. And uh, to know that there's someone there who thought about them, you're absolutely right. Bang
1: nice. on. Yeah. thank you all right well, great questions well great guest <laughs> yes thank you.
0: Well, thank you so much
1: yeah we're gonna yeah. wrap up because we we don't want to take you know like your whole day you're three hours ahead of us so <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> still will have to go on with your day but it was lovely to have you on the show uh stage it was a pleasure and uh, an honor um thank you so much for sharing everything and being unfiltered and truthful and honest and raw and um i think uh, i think a, a lot of people are gonna connect with what you said yeah. and definitely i encourage people to go and check your website sagegalon.com. i will post the link and everything check his art uh, people because it's it's amazing it's provocative it's raw it's truthful and it just hits you where it needs to hit you to wake you up and um, Michael, would you like to, to say?
0: Yeah, I, I, I just hope we get to meet in person one of these days soon, uh, hopefully in New York and uh, <laughs> check out the vibe with you and go to places, you know, so well and that have really, you know, helped to make you the person you are today. I salute you. It was an honor as well. And mm-hmm. like Milo said, I think we have listeners all over the world, Sage. And I think a lot of them, a lot of them are really going to benefit uh From what you said, your advice, especially, uh, it's really needed right now. So, thank you so much. You're doing great work.
2: Thank you both. Thank you very much, Michael and Melissa. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and honor.
0: Take care. Love Love. it. Take care. Bye -bye. Bye Bye
2: bye. Love.
1: Thank you again, Sage Gallon. And um, yeah, we're looking forward to your next projects for sure. And uh, yes, I just want to remind the guests to subscribe, like, and share so we can um, keep doing what we're doing, uh, which is connecting the dots. So, so- you don't have to. Yay. We got it. <laughs> I
0: got it this time. <laughs> yeah, we
1: did. <laughs> and uh, we want to thank also our producer, uh, assistant producer, Pretty Bali, who is in the UK, and also I would like to personally thank Kent Spikman, who you know, inter- you know, like uh, put put me in contact with Sage Galong. Um, thank you, uh, Kent. Kent is the CEO of Connect TV, and uh, we're looking forward to eventually, co- you know, like do some work together, uh, collaborate. So, yes. Connect with Kent. <laughs> Connect with Kent on there
0: Connect
1: go. TV. <laughs> yeah. sounds a good one too. <laughs> yeah. And
0: uh, yeah, yeah, I also wanted to add my thanks and thank you, Melissa as well for facilitating this incredible conversation. Um, uh, as, as we said, yeah, we like to connect the dots so you don't have to. And uh, we're so excited to be able to announce that uh, very shortly, our upcoming guest will be author, multi award winning journalist and war correspondent, Janine Giovanni. Uh, And we're going to be discussing her new book, The Vanishing, The Twilight of Christianity in the Middle East. Um, Janine is someone who I think, like Sage, does not hide her feelings whatsoever. And uh, she's someone who has worked around with conflicts around the world. And we'll we'll also talk about conflict, how it arises, how it can arise very, very quickly without you almost not even noticing. Uh, She's very expressive, very controversial really looking forward to that one. On a final note, uh, I think from both of us is uh, Sage in the interview was talking about uh, how really important it is to tell people you love them or that you're thinking of them. And like we always uh, kind of like to end Global Impact is use this technology we have in front of us to reach out and touch someone who perhaps is going through a rough patch right now, who you haven't heard from for a while But even a quick, quick call or a text or whatever can make a big, big difference in someone's day. So please, uh, we encourage you to do that. And uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, And please, as Melissa said, tell others about Global Impact. We look forward to being with you again soon.
1: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.